as a firm, for many, many years, we've had this culture in place of sharing resources across offices, certainly. That's part of our strength as we grow and as the an additional office is added. It may be small, but as we said earlier, we have the backing of the larger office and we tend to try to staff projects based on expertise, no matter where that person sits. Some markets are more challenging than others in that respect. Some clients are more challenging than others. We all know New Yorkers are very New York centric. So oftentimes our clients don't want a team full of folks who sit in Houston and Atlanta and Boston. They want to know that their team is here and that they, we can show up on site tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. But we certainly have always the backing of staff and team members across the firm at any given time. And client-wise too, we have some clients who are national clients. And so if there's a project that we're working on in one region, one office may be managing it versus another region. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're excited to be joined by Latoya Nelson-Kemdang and Don David-Pierre of Moody Nolan in a conversation about how to launch operations in New York. Latoya Nelson-Kemdang is the Director of Operations of the New York Studio of Moody Nolan and a U.S. Fulbright Senior Scholar. As a registered architect and certified interior designer, her experience spans architecture, planning, exhibit design, interior design, and design strategy. She has worked on project typologies, which include civic, hospitality, retail, museum, workplace, education, and government, almost everything under the sun, it seems. Latoya has been working simultaneously as a visiting associate professor at Pratt Institute for over 10 years. She educates students on interdisciplinary design approaches. She has a research focus on participatory design processes, impacts of displacement on authentic communities, passive sustainable technologies, and indigenous architecture. Latoya earned a Master of Architecture from the University of Pennsylvania School of Design, as well as a Certificate in Real Estate Design and Development from the Warden School of Business. She also has a Master of Fine Arts degree from George Washington University and a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration and Marketing from Georgetown University. Dawn is a licensed architect with over 20 years of experience working on a range of project types, including healthcare, research and learning, housing and education. She holds a BS in architectural design from MIT and an MARC from the University of Texas at Austin. Dawn most enjoys thinking and design holistically and using sustainable practice to bring meaningful change to communities. In need. In her role as senior associate and project manager with Moody Nolan, she relishes the opportunity to mentor young professionals and support the growth of the NYC office, something we might get to talk about today. Two weeks ago, we talked to Alan Schaefer, a CEO and chief sustainability officer at Moody Nolan, about how to design sustainable operations. And with that, thank you very much for joining us today, Latoya and Don. And as always, Chris, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great. So I think one good place to start is just to talk about how you both work together, how you both know each other, and ultimately, how do you divide and share uh, your roles in operations and business development? Thank you, Chris and George, for the invitation to be here, first of all, to talk about operations, a very important topic in architecture and design terms. So Don and I, we actually were introduced through a common colleague and you know, I was told you have to talk to this person. She's absolutely amazing. And I was six months on the job and I definitely needed someone with senior level experience to help spur the growth of the office. 
And, you know, we contemplated, you know, holistically talking to Alan and the operations and strategy team at our national headquarters. And on meeting her, I think everyone knew she was like the right like person to begin uh, kind of propelling us into our strategy, like kind of moving forward in terms of our growth. And then also into, you know, the day-to-day kind of operations of being an office, of coming into an office where you're number four. So what we did in the beginning is very different what we're doing now. We had an 80-20 strategy of marketing and business development in the initial phases and 20% like kind of practice and operations overseeing some healthcare projects for programming and feasibility, as well as the work that we were already in process on for the Javits Center. You know, as we've grown to staff of over 20, we're now 60-40 split, where 60% I'm working business development and marketing and 40% practice operations, and she's doing the inverse. I mean, I'll let her jump in from there to talk about, like, how our Right. Thank you for that introduction, LaToya. When LaToya and I met and were having conversations about the direction of the New York office and the opportunity that I could have to join this office and help grow it, it was really exciting to me because from our conversation and our experience together, I knew that LaToya has such a keen eye for the industry and an understanding of where opportunities are. She had been on the ground building relationships and making connections for several months. And so even though I didn't have an answer to what kind of projects will I be working on, what kind of team will I be leading, those were open-ended questions. I knew without a doubt that we would grow, that things would take off, and there would be lots of different opportunities. So that was kind of an exciting challenge for me. And so over the course of the time, the last year and a half, I think laying the groundwork, building off of the relationships that LaToya had started and established with different clients in different sectors, we've really been able to target strategic growth in certain project types in certain areas. And that helps us focus our relationship building efforts and to make decisions about what kind of opportunities to pursue, what kind of clients to pursue, or uh, focus more of our attention on building relationship with. Interesting to hear about that change in the ratio of work between business development and practice operations and how that shifted since the start of your tenure and now where you are today. I'd love to hear more about what does your typical work week, work month, and work quarter look like right now at Moody Nolan in the New York office? Thanks, Chris. So we have a seller-doer model in our practice operations where PMs are, you know, expected to, as an executioner of practice, we know that that's our best marketing tool, delivering quality projects. And so we take that very seriously, you know, as well as our marketing pursuits, we know how to get work that way, but the upfront costs to working on proposals and submitting RFPs versus building quality relationships with the clients, you know, that we currently have is where we find our focus to be more shifted today. So as a result, as in our current practice, we're really focused on servicing the clients that we currently have and that we're building. So in a typical week, I'm meeting with, speaking with our co-collaborators in different firms that we collaborate with as associate architects, sometimes we're design architects, our consultants, MEP, landscape architects, 
the people that we're consistently building relationships with to make sure that, you know, the work that we're doing together, you know, the communication processes are in place and they were executing the way that we should be. And that's my role as a project executive on the New York projects. We have weekly team check-ins, you know, with project managers that we facilitate just to make sure that operationally we're staying on task in the projects that we're not spending too much time on certain tasks if we, you know, allocated fee for a certain percentage of time just to make sure that we're tracking and then also, you know, projecting. And then it's client relationship management is a part of my task throughout the week. And Dawn can go into some of her weekly tasks as well. As a project manager of several projects, it's very similar for me. I do spend part of my week checking in with my teams to make sure that we're on track and on task, that everybody knows what our deliverables are and what we need to do to meet them. Do we need help? Do we need additional staffing temporarily? And then also communicating outwardly with the client team and stakeholders to make sure that we're meeting their needs. So it's a lot of managing that kind of thing workload planning and projecting, understanding what's the timeline of this project versus the next project and where can we shift and share resources across teams. And then ultimately understanding if there's a point where we need to hire additional staff and what roles do we need that person to fill now versus six months from now is a big part of checking in with LaToya and the rest of our project management team. And so for monthly tasks, I mean, it really gets a little more macro. So we're looking at SWOT analysis, you know, looking for where the future opportunities are, you know, projecting future growth and needs and monitoring the updated monitoring for the month and the weekly projects. And then just in terms of our marketing, RPD, checking in on proposals that we've submitted, quality control looking and projecting to see, you know, what we have in the upcoming month or quarter for our quarterly projections and starting to assess, really tracking like from 2020 to 2021, like month by month, like what are the differences in our operations? What percent of proposals went out? What percent of people were working or allocating time to projects and making sure that we're staying fine? And I think one of the big challenges is when we shifted from ADBD marketing to 20% like practice management, like really pulling ourselves out of that like kind of marketing BD role into this different role. But one of the things that Alan mentioned is that we do have quarterly meetings where we check in with the Moody National Strategy and we communicate the New York strategy and the, make sure that there is an alignment you know, between the two. Uh, but that usually is like based in kind of financial operations, expenses, projections of our like our major goals in terms of the clients that we currently have, the ones that we're targeting and things of that nature. So it's a pretty fluid process and every day is pretty dynamic, I think. And I think for being in my role and being in Dawn's role, you just have to switch your skill sets constantly. <laughs> This one it's about minute. being adaptable, right? <laughs> Agile. And do you feel that that seller doer model is like what kind of bottlenecks have you come across with that model? Do you feel that because I think it's like when you started like two to three people in the New York office now, 
there's 20 people in the New York office. Do you feel like that model is basically effective over the long, like a, a longer horizon? Or do you feel like are you identifying anything that needs to change from that too? Like, I'm, I'm curious about like the shift from the 80, basically part of the question is a little bit about the feedback loops in which you're assessing, like, is this working for us or not working for us? Jordan, I think that's a great question. I think as the office scales up, we know that we have to kind of reevaluate the model. When does it make sense that, you know, departmentally, we have, you know, a team of sellers and then a team of doers, and we're able to separate that. At the 20 staff mark, we're still assessing it, but we think that it's probably not there yet. But as we grow, we want to be really mindful. And I think that's a part of our tracking process. So, and I understand that, you know, it's a very complex thing to be a seller tour, right? Like that's really not two skill sets that they would teach you in design school. You're just really, you're the doer. So you're the designer doer or the technical doer. So then to bring people into practice, who've never really done that unless they work for a smaller boutique size firm is also another layer of kind of people management. I mean, I think it's human resource management. Mm-hmm. and But also I think what happens is that you're getting a skill set that's very entrepreneurial, you yes, know, yeah. uh, that you wouldn't necessarily get if you were at a larger firm. Even though, you know, we are in the large firm round, table. we're a larger firm, but we're a boutique size right now. So what you get is you get when you come into a boutique and you say, well, we have to do a little bit of everything. We have to be really flexible right now. But as we grow, our operational model should shift. Do you find that that let's say the I'm curious about the flows on like iterating through projects. So some of the challenges that that happen with projects is, is sort of the scope of work, right? And how do you before a project gets started actually define that scope of work. And typically you have a sort of series of tasks that you can you can work through. But do you find, do you have any methods in which you've been using to like improve that that iterative process for the team? Basically learning how to scope maybe more effectively from the onset. We find that really, you know, in, in conversations we have with a lot of the companies that it's a very recurring pain point, right? It's like, do you use square footage? Do you use like, what are some of the, the tactics that you've used to help you create that kind of culture, like learning on how to get better at even doing those things? Yeah, I think it's definitely been a process. Um, and Don can chime in on this too. I mean, I think one of the kind of strengths is, you know, as we're kind of dividing out into practice areas, is that when the PM, when we are at the very inception of the project and we're considering it, the clients, you know, are the, with their scope goals, you know, they're very aware of. So it's not like someone says, we won this project, here it is, good luck, there's the schedule and fee. So it's a very inclusive process from the beginning. Operationally, how we could become quicker at redefining and defining scope, I think that's, I mean, because we have such a diverse practice, even being a small office, we have housing, healthcare, cultural, civic spaces, as well as retail, retail right? Aviation. So aviation, exactly. So that's six practice areas for a 20-person office. So when you talk about kind of efficiencies on analyzing scope, like how do you 
do that for Terminal 4 and then also do it for a retail space on Madison Avenue. You know, like, yeah. it's going to be difficult to streamline that, I think, at this size. But it's something that I think we think about, for sure. Definitely. It's definitely an evolving process. And to some extent has to do and evolves as we get to know each individual client or a set of clients in a project type, right? Some clients, as Latoya said, are very clear about what their scope and their timeline and their expectations are. Other clients put RFPs out sort of as a, as a, you tell us what we, what our scope should be. And so the ability to sort of assess an RFP as we submit more and more and compete more and more for work in a certain practice area you have to think about it differently. Is this a client that needs more direction where our schedule might expand because scope isn't clear at first? Or is this a client who they know what they want? They want it in six weeks. like, And so we just expect to be given the guidelines and the information. And so we have to approach it differently for different situations. As you were, um, I mean, really, you started fast on heavy BD, which I think is unique, like at the scale, like how do you go so fast from 20 to or two to 20, where you have the backing of this national brand, but has a new presence in New York. I'd love to hear about the kinds of offerings that you were positioning Moody Nolan inside the market around. So like, as you are working with communities or working in new practice areas, what was the pitch and what continues to be the pitch in terms of what has not existed in the market, but now does because Moody Nolan, New York is here? I think we really bring diversity in uh, thought process and in background as a firm, as the largest African-American owned firm in the country. We're diverse by design. We're very intentional about having a diverse staff, both ethnically, gender diverse, even practice area diverse, right? So I think we bring that to the table because we're used to collaborating across offices and across disciplines and expertise levels. We can bring a hospitality thought leader to the table in a healthcare project environment. And so I think that's something that we pride ourselves on. It brings a, a depth of perspective and a level of compassion and empathy to the things that we do, our diversity. So I would say that's one of our number one offerings to the market. And I think also having the larger brand, Moody Nolan, behind us, where you know we were very small in the beginning, just for, but when we had particular meetings, you know, before COVID, you know, we would have, you know, some of our thought leaders in other regions like Boston, you know, Columbus, you know, Atlanta, and in Texas office come into the office, a support system. So we knew if, you know, we needed to do a shred or we needed some design assistance that we could count on other studios and the backing of a 200 plus person firm to say, hey, we need assistance in this area or that area. So it's very different than I think from, you know, uh, kind of this idea of being four people in a firm and you're four people, but we have four people and we're, you know, we have an accounting department and an HR department. You know, they sit in another city, but, you know, they are there to support us. So that was very helpful. And also they bring a portfolio, you know, so, which is, a really strong portfolio of practice areas. 
And so if the RFP says, have you ever done new construction in K-12 or in higher education, we completed a lot of that. And there's not a lot of architecture firms in New York that have, well, there are a lot of architecture firms in New York, first of all, we, when we look at the analysis of the firm, but many of them do interiors work. So the strength of portfolio that we bring in new construction is really unlike any other firm our size in New York City. So of course, you know, there are the larger, large firms and they have done it all. But in terms of our size and the amount of new construction projects that we have, it did position us very differently in New York City. So, you know, we would collaborate with the firm who had like local experience, but maybe not new construction experience, but a relationship with the client. So that was very helpful. And also in order to really establish our presence in the community, we worked with Van Allen Institute and Urban Design Forum on Neighborhoods Now. Uh, which was a community-based project, you know, where we help small businesses in Bed-Stuy reopen post-pandemic by providing pro bono services. So we really wanted to, even though, you know, we were still growing, we wanted to let the communities know that we were here. In fact, Kurt Moody has family in this community in Brooklyn and Bed-Stuy. And so we just wanted to, you know, have an access point to let People know that we were here in terms of the community, the bids, uh, but also in the peer firms that we participated with in that project, uh, which were maybe about 12 to 15 firms. So it definitely helped with our presence, but we were also really committed to giving back. Back two weeks ago when we were talking with COO uh, Alan Schaefer, he mentioned earlier, a term that he used a few times was structured growth. And with such a rapid growth over the past year, I'd love to hear what kinds of lessons and ideas and practices or methodologies you picked up from Alan and talked through with Alan. Yeah. So, you know, Alan has been a very, you know, critical force as the operating chief operating officer. You know, he was assigned that role actually, you know, during, I've been in Moody Mullen just over two years. So while I was here, you know, having that position assigned and allocated as we're 11 offices across the United States was really a critical and necessary for us to have a person kind of providing, you know, strategic guideline and structured, you know, growth model for us. And so him coming into that role and us like also growing in a very structured way, you know, I think the conversations that we've had with Alan, around our growth in retail, you know, we had a very effective seller doer in our retail project as a retail project manager. And as a result, she was continuing to win additional work, not from the RFP process, but from executing a project successfully. But because of that, like very quick and rapid growth, we had to create an analysis point, you know, have very kind of detailed communication, you know, uh, with our talent management committee about, you know, when it's time to bring someone on, is there, you know, enough revenue beyond a certain time period, you know, to continue to have this person and what's the anticipated, you know, additional work that could potentially come, you know, from this client. And so the, the meetings with Alan and conversations with Alan around structured growth 
are really critical because they require strong justification. So you can't just come in and say, I'm swamped, you know, <laughs> and you can hire somebody to send them now, you know, but you have to have the documentation to begin to back it up and to say, like, here's my projected revenue for 2021, 2022 from this client. These are the hours that the people who are currently working on the project are working at this point. And this is what we need so that they're not overextended or working overtime and weekends. And he's very methodical about it and very patient, you know, like as you're going through it. But I think that is a part of our growth principle. And he's managing that across multiple offices, you know, all of which are, you know, in this growth method, you know, partially, you know, from our recognition as firm of the year, but also, you know, we've just kind of been fortunate in the pandemic to have the ability to, to grow during this time. So. I, think, I think it's what I love about the conversation thus far is like, there's such a focus on intentionality around working on the business versus in the business, where, you know, I think for some of our audiences, probably like running smaller firms, you know, the five to 10 person office, a 15 person office. And sometimes it's really hard to think about how do you remove yourself enough to think long-term? Because a lot of what you're talking about, the forecasting, even thinking about being methodical around client A, we're doing this type of work with them. It's likely that we might not get another project of this scope until, you know, there's so much sort of even as part of that seller dual model, it's not even just selling. It's also like the sleuthing, right? The kind of like investigative work on teasing out that, which is all very critical, but like it has to be, the culture has to buy into it and really do it, right? I mean, they have to do it as part of their practice. And so one question that I think we we often get is related around like, when should even that role emerge? Like, I mean, I think, Oftentimes, principals struggle with like hiring someone that is on maybe non-billable work, right? Because that's always the biggest tension is like headcount on those two areas. For both of you, I mean, where do you think like how critical, how early? Let's say if you started from scratch today, you didn't have the resources of, of a large uh, national brand behind you. When would you hire yourself? Oh, that's a good question. It's a great question. Number one, number one. <laughs> well, Don, you could go first. I- <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, it it almost feels like the way that we've grown is the way I would do it. I think, you know, if you think about it strategically as a firm with multiple offices, there's one level of decision making about what your offices are like that's about do we have a headquarters? Do we have mini offices that are just sort of production offices or we got a project in this city? And so we just need a team on the ground there for a couple of years, or is it a market that we really want to invest in and grow and have it be a thriving, contributing, like pulling in new work? And so certainly, obviously, there was a point when that was the case for this office. And so, you know, we were small for the first few years here, and then it was time to bring LaToya on. So I think once you've got somebody on the ground and six months, eight months in, I'm making headway, I'm making traction, building relationships. I've got some you know, maybe a term contract underway or, you know, then it's like, okay, this is going to bring work. So now I need somebody to manage the work. Like now I need a team to execute. And that's the point. I think it makes sense. It feels like it was the right sequence. <laughs> it's an interesting question because I would say 
the, the different 11 offices, we didn't all use the same approach, right? So prior to, you know, Alan becoming the chief operating officer, everyone kind of individually had a different kind of growth model. And some of our peers or my peers, definitely the other directors had kind of a more junior person as their like next hire. But I think in my observation, having a more senior person as my next direct hire, even though it's the person with the higher non-billable rate, is that it allowed me to focus on other things, you know, and that I didn't have to directly manage that person. And while that, you know, having someone at the junior level or the intern level come in, it does, you know, as being a professor at Pratt, I understand that it does require a lot of human resources building, guidance, and hands-on management. And if, to me, if you really want to grow, then you need, you know, an equal force to be able to be autonomous and independent. And I think ways that you can begin operationally to kind of fill in kind of production management is through temporary services. You know, like you can begin in in New York, there are a lot of architects, there are a lot of people who want to work freelance and there are ways to get production services. There are ways to get a graphic service or rendering service. Like, so for me, I said, well, what can I outsource? And, and there's quality outsource mechanisms here. And then I don't have to bring in someone for payroll to be a renter, right? Or to be, a, you know, a modeler. But then I can say, oh, but the main management points were client-facing. We need to go to meetings and are put on the spot for the clients, you know, can be very challenging that they're able to independently and autonomously handle that. So. I would say earlier than later and then find ways to do outsourcing for the other services that you can then bring on, you know, people more so in a leadership role. I want to shift to talking a little bit about teaching. So Latoya, you have this business background. And as we mentioned earlier, Dawn, you relished the opportunity to mentor staff in the team. And Latoya, you're also a teacher. You're also a professor at Pratt and have been for quite a while and also a Fulbright scholar. So there's a really interesting dimension of teaching I'd love to hear more about inside of the office. One around business. So possibly where there's maybe the weakest skill set amongst architects and how to kind of restructure or build it anew. But then also other thoughts about working as an architect in communities where you can make a difference to the community at large through architecture, but just not in the architecture itself? I think teaching has provided, you know, a mechanism for me to really, one, develop a level of patience and also to really kind of assess people's strengths and weaknesses relatively quickly. So, you know, in addition to like kind of, guiding someone from one point at the beginning of the semester into a growth point. So ultimately, I'm having individual conversations with staff quarterly to make sure that one, they're identifying what their goals are, and then the next quarter, assessing where they are in those goals. In terms of feedback, 
if there is an issue, I don't wait until the end of the quarter to address it. I pretty much address it within 24 hours. So direct, honest feedback is really critical to growth. And if someone is willing to do that for you, to invest in you versus to say, this person's not doing well, it's just on how swim out of the organization, you know, that we're really kind of invested, you know, in that level of growth. But in terms of like directly, like what is being taught from a business perspective? Yeah, I think we're in business, you're thinking of the bottom line. And in design school, you're thinking about how can I make this beautiful? Design is like people are very passionate. You know, they want to stay up all night, like working on their models and their digital renderings. And in the business side, like, is it profitable or is it not profitable? You know, is there opportunity for growth? Is the marketing successful or is it not successful? It's like very black and white. And so you're merging architecture into business, right? And then you're kind of educating them both differently. But many of the people who are in real estate development, the people who are in construction practice are a little more business savvy than the way that architects are educated. So in our team meetings, in my meetings with people individually, I really try, you know, to bring that in and, you know, to bring those conversations into our studio so that they're aware, like, these are the projects we have. This is the revenue we're generating. You know, these are the projects that are doing well, you know, like, so that there's a feedback loop and to say, like, actually, this is what your project is doing. This is where it's, profitable or not profitable. And we have a tool, you know, a digital tool that we're using to uh, track that. But I think it's really critical when we talk to, you know, our product manager meetings, but also in people development to give very kind of direct and honest feedback, but also give opportunities for growth. But then there's nuance to that because everyone is coming with something a little bit different. I would agree. And I'll just piggyback on that to say that I think it helps also I think we try to have a level of transparency. And so having everybody at every level feel invested in have an understanding of what's this, what's the project I'm on? What are the hours that are allocated? What's my contribution mean to the bottom line? And how, how does, how do I fit into that is I think empowering to people in a way that is, is not always taught or that we're not always exposed to. And I a hundred percent agree that we as architects are not, trained in school as business people, right? It's like, do the beautiful design, lose your shirt in the process <laughs> if you have to. <laughs> so learning how to balance that is really critical, I think. And I think Latoya brings a lot of that to the table with her background in, in business. That transparency piece is, is so critical. It's like, how can you expect team members to have a stake, of, like feel ownership if they're they don't understand the outcome of what they're doing in some capacity, right? You don't you don't give them the opportunity to be reflective, right. which means you don't give them the opportunity to grow. And really appreciate that that's kind of embedded in, in your practice. I mean, also the feedback loops of being able to even do like quarterly one-on-ones or quarterly uh, feedback cycles is so critical. You often hear there is a people who are exposed as employees to practices that don't have those feedback loops are more likely to leave the profession entirely, which then impacts a lot, right? It impacts the industry as a whole. 
And so I just want to really just kind of call that out and so appreciate like the fact that this this kind of feedback loop is, is critical because everybody wants it. I'm sure everyone here wants that from whoever they're reporting to or whoever they're working with. They want that kind of feedback to make changes and improve and, and be a better contributor or collaborator or whatnot. So I just want to say that that's uh, really appreciated. I also think that it's kind of fascinating in the context that you're, you've grown virtually, which is another piece to the puzzle here. Uh, and it's a very, it's like, you know, we're talking about growing a firm and then now we're talking about how do you grow the firm in a context in which many people have never done it before, right? Or it's just like brand new to a lot of people. So how has that process evolved for the company? You know, there's a lot of talk about hybrid versus remote. Monograph is fully remote. We're like international in terms of our scope and we try to build processes around that and be intentional. But I'm curious, like for your team, how have you been all thinking about having grown virtually and what does that mean for the company moving forward? Definitely. I think that's top of mind for a lot of people, right? There's been this massive shift and adjustment in how we work through the pandemic and everybody who could go home and stay home, went home and stayed home. And now things are opening up and what does it mean now? There's this new bound flexibility and work-life balance, whether it's actually balanced or not, maybe another conversation, but but what happens when it's time to go back to the office every day? Is that the expectation or is it a hybrid situation? And I think virtually speaking, we've been extremely successful. Obviously, our numbers tell that story, but it is a challenge. And I think it's a I think it's a challenge across the profession. Of how are you creative? What are the digital and virtual tools that you can use to be collaborative and creative across the team? And how well do they work? I would say probably the there are a, a hundred tools to use and we're all very adaptable and we can get used to them. Probably one challenge as a new team coming together is that you don't already know somebody's process and somebody's everyone on your team's strengths and weaknesses and how you don't have a synergy built up in the office in person. And so how do you navigate that and figure out who's got which skill set in this digital platform to continue to be as productive and creative in a process together? So I think that can be challenging. I think we probably are looking forward to being able to spend at least some time in the office together as teams, right? And just to start to build that rapport for those of us who've not been able to work, who didn't know each other before this virtual (laughs) situation. Yeah, I think it's growing virtually. I mean, we've had a couple of outings, like uh, outdoor outings. We went to Little Island. We had our Moody Nolan Day outing. Uh, as a team on uh, Roosevelt Island at Fort Freedom Park. And in that case, it was my first time physically seeing people, you know? <laughs> and, you know, you interview people in this kind of rectangle and then you have conversations and then we're kind of modulating meetings in the same format and then we came together, you know, for the first time this summer. And it's kind of a shocking realization that it, Actually, I think, Dawn, you started right at the beginning of the pandemic. So when I left the office, that is me and, you know, uh, two people from our Jackets team. And then coming back together is this whole dynamic group of people. And then realizing that that face-to-face interaction in that moment is like, wow, this is important for human interaction. But ultimately, we'll ease back in with a hybrid model that will allow teams to connect, studios to connect, and people to connect during the week in a way that we have people kind of rolling in. 
but also project managers being able to work directly with their team. I can't imagine the efficiencies that we will have just by adding that to our process because we started with a very challenging practice (laughs) starting day one on project not really meeting or being able to just sit down and sketch together or to brainstorm together in a, in a space. So we are looking forward to returning. And we know that, you know, as architects and designers, the spatial implications of being in a physical, well-lit, <laughs> open space together is, you know, is a benefit. As an anecdote, Chris and I have yet to meet in person. <laughs> <laughs> We have not ever met in person, which is fascinating. I think we're both trapped in these alternative worlds that we have (laughs) in both our screens. So I want to start shifting over to some audience Q&A. We have a bunch of questions in here. First one is from Marjan Pearson, longtime friend of Monograph, has been interviewed several times and presented during Section Cut. Always a really fascinating perspective in the chat in terms of the conversation. As an office location studio of a larger firm, do you have a percentage of clients that are shared across locations? And same kind of question about talent sharing across your various locations at Moody Nolan. Do you want to go, Don? The answer is yes and yes in some cases. I think as a firm for many, many years, we've had this culture in place of sharing resources across offices, certainly. That's part of our strength as we grow and as the an additional office is added, it may be small, but as we said earlier, we have the backing of the larger office and we tend to try to staff projects based on expertise, no matter where that person sits. Some markets are more challenging than others in that respect. Some clients are more challenging than others. We all know New Yorkers are very New York centric. So oftentimes our clients don't want a team full of Folks who sit in Houston and Atlanta and Boston, they want to know that their team is here and that they, we can show up on site tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. But we certainly have always the backing of staff and team members across the firm at any given time. And client-wise, too, we have some clients who are national clients. And so if there's a project that we're working on in one region, one office may be managing it versus another region. Another question about corporate culture alignment. So do you run into issues where a prospective client's corporate culture or positions are not aligned with yours? If you choose such a client, do you see an opposition from your employees? And if so, how do you manage that? We haven't directly run into that issue where we had value misalignment with the client. But I, you know, how would you manage that? I talked to my students about this, actually, because... I'm teaching a course called Productive Collisions, and a part of the core uh, learning outcome of the course is to be able to have difficult, you know, conversations. And in the course of that, I want them to know that there are times when you come into a meeting, you're coming into a situation where the proposal or the design could be not universal design, you know, not inclusive, some, you know, you know, uh, some things that they have talked about that are really upsetting to them is designs that are offensive to the homeless community, design spaces that are not, that are sort of designed to be uncomfortable, like to create discomfort. And in that case, 
I talked about to them about, well, you know, we clients and usually client that is paying is not the person that's homeless, right? Like, so there's a business and the business owner says this, you know, you have to think in terms of, okay, in this space, you know, I'm a person that is compassionate about the needs of homeless people. How do I communicate this without like saying I quit the project? And so that's uh, what I challenged them to do, to say that I'm not, not so like, you know, offended by this process that I'm willing, I'm unwilling to engage. So the question then becomes like, what communication tools can you use, whether that's drawing or that's design, to begin to present options that serve both? But if get to the table and you say, never mind, I don't like the way you're thinking, I'm out of here, then the person that replaces you probably won't care at all. <laughs> so I think it's important to be at the table having the difficult conversation versus saying, like, I'm not doing this project because my mission and your mission are totally misaligned. Let's say continue to have the conversations and push the trajectory kind of progress forward. That was fantastic. Thank you, Latoya. I'm glad that we were able to connect what we were talking about before the call started, which was about this course, which I think is just such a great title, Productive Collisions. In your hires for operations and BD managers, do you exclusively seek candidates who have a background working as an architect? How involved are you in the design process while outsourcing the work to various design firms? Oh, that's um, so, Don, do you want to tackle half of that and I'll tackle the other half? Sure. I, I mean, I would say in our case, certainly um, people who are project managers that we're hiring need to be able to wear multiple hats. And so, of the time they have a background in architecture, I would say. Um, And we are learning together, I think, and growing together on the business development side of things. And then we do try to remain involved in the design process. Um, We try not to outsource design work unless we're in a partnership where we're the architect of record and another firm is the design architect, in which case we stay, you know, we're, we're still involved from the beginning so that we're clear with the overall intention is and the goal. Hey, you tackled them both. I did, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> it was good. It was great. We have a comment here. We have a comment here. I love the continuous reference to investment in the office, initially in the development of clients and with staff, etc. Any more thoughts on investment in general? Like, I think it's really fascinating to contrast, though you, you are like temporarily a small firm, like a temporarily a small office, but operating in a way that's much different because you have this incredible leverage of Moody Nolan. And also, not just the incredible incredible leverage, but apparent in this conversation is that you also are a very skilled operator, skilled leader. So the combination of those two is really just fascinating to walk through. But I would say one thing that could be difficult for principals, basically people who are starting out at the two to three person scale that you started at, whose livelihood is attached to this sort of incremental growth, it can be difficult to not take a distribution of profitability, but rather to make investment into the firm and to pay the business back. I'd love if you could maybe make the case, like even more of a case for investment, however is possible in terms of creating profitability so you can pay the business uh, for 
its future version. That's tricky. I mean, cash flow, it's tricky. So if you're starting this same business from scratch, the multitudes of ways that you're financing it, or, you know, for some people that's personal, you know, for some people that's a loan or a line of credit. And for some people, maybe, you know, they have a financial backer, you know, who knows, but going into this process, of starting a business, I don't think you should be naive on operationally what it takes to run it for a year. The, I mean, it's like with any kind of operational budget, it is what it is. Like you have to decide, you know, how much am I allocating to physical space? You know, how much am I allocating, you know, to, you know, BD and marketing, you know, and, and just set the budget. And then you have to find like the funding source, right? Like, because it's not like a restaurant, you open day one and then people like start to come in and consume. It could take, when I first started, John Ensign, who was a, he's a partner emeritus, but is primarily one of the kind of masterminds of the geographic expansion of Moody Nolan says to me, you don't want a project, if you want a project in two years, that will be a great accomplishment. It's like, because you're starting from scratch and this is like, starting from zero. So you shouldn't expect that next month you're going to have, you know, a project and things are going to be great. And then, so he really, he said the expectations as, you know, it takes time. This process takes time. So, you know, I think my advice would be to kind of allocate what you're projecting for expenses And then based on whether that's project type, whether that's kind of collaborating with other firms, whether it's doing uh, competitions or whatever your business model is to start to generate the initial revenue, it's not going to happen day one. You know, so it's going to take, even if you're very aggressive, time. You know, I think that's why some people don't start a business until they have a client, you know? So they're like, well, I have this client, so I'm ready to start. So they know the revenue is there. But if you're starting and you're starting fresh and there is no client in place, you do have to allocate the revenue. The revenue should come in paying yourself and the staff you need to make that successful. Uh, Because ultimately, I think compromising on what you need is not going to ultimately lead you to a successful place. It's probably going to leave you very frustrated and then kind of burned out. (laughs) Yeah, lesson there is uh, don't leave your day job until you have a client and then hired some people to help service that client. So (laughs) it's kind of like, don't jump ship yet. Just (laughs) make sure there's a boat to stay afloat on. So well, we're at the, at the very end of, of our conversation, which is unfortunate because I think we could have gone for much longer. But we have a favorite question here that we like to ask at the very end. And it's about being human, essentially. And so the question is, what's the kindest, nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? It's very outside of operations. It's now back in the world of just being people. So would love to, maybe we could start off with Don. And it can be personal. I mean, we've got all sorts of answers here. So yeah, that's a tough one. There, there are a lot of kindnesses that have come my way over the years. But what comes to mind is a time when I was in graduate school in Texas, and I had an internship that was five miles from where I lived, but it took me like ninety minutes in one hundred and five degrees on the bus to get there. I didn't have a car. This was before there were showers at the office, so I couldn't bike. And I had a coworker who offered to pick me up every day 
He said, I can pick you up. I live nearby. And he drove me to work the entire summer. And at the end of the summer, I found out he lived 15 miles in the opposite direction. <laughs> and he never said a word. So I thought that was really nice. Like he never asked. He never he's just, yeah, you're right around the corner from me. And then on the highway, that's not, <laughs> that's not right around the corner. That's awesome. My story is from, you know, in terms of kindness, I think New York is a really interesting and dynamic city, but I'm always kind of amazed by the kindness of strangers here. I was on a trip and I left my phone uncharged on the bus and it just gotten this whatever iPhone 10 years ago. It was very expensive for me you know, for a phone. And yeah, I bought like a simple like burner phone just to have my active number. And a couple of days later, I got a call on the phone and she's like, I have your phone. You know, she's like, I didn't have the right charger. So I borrowed it from someone. I had to find someone to borrow the charger from so I could charge it so I could get the number to call you. I live in Brooklyn in the Jackie Robinson Housing Association, and you can come pick it up. And I was like, I believe in the goodness of people because, you know, <laughs> this awesome. person could have like taken my phone or whatever, or just like thrown it in the garbage. But she went out of her way to make sure that she returned it to me. And yeah, so that's my kind of New York kindness story. And also like being. Uh, in my early days of motherhood, the mom with the stroller at the subway, like carrying the stroller up the stairs. Oh. So many gracious New Yorkers helping in that process uh, with the non-elevator subway stations uh, throughout the city. So, yeah, that's my kindness story. And I always remember it because my husband's like, you're never going to see it again. And I was like, I am because I believe in kindness of people. <laughs> That is amazing. <laughs> and I, I would never, I mean, I personally wouldn't even think to call the number, the same number, thinking that, wow, that's amazing. It's amazing. Well, thank you both so much for such great stories. I think, I mean, underscoring again, like how we, at the very end of these conversations, we like to bring it back to just like the kindness of people in general. Hopefully that's pervasive in, in the culture and in the industry as well. So with that, uh, thank you both for, for joining us. Thank you, Chris, as well. Really appreciate you. Appreciate everyone that was able to join today and for the listeners out there in the in, in our podcast as well. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. It's Thank been a pleasure. So this is great. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thank doing. you so much. It's a lot of Cheers. fun. Thanks a lot. I know. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.